Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Oh, yeah, get the boogie fever on this Wednesday, everybody. Hope everybody out there in Liberty Land is doing well. This, of course, is the electric version of that Liberty Land. So welcome, everybody, to Electric Liberty Land, episode number seven. And that means you can find this at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL7. A quick reminder, guys, at the top of the show, please follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Please do listen to our Monday and Friday podcast. Monday, of course, interviews done by Mark Clare, the uh, in-depth personages in the Liberty Movement. Just heard a great interview uh, with Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Do not miss that one. Fantastic episode. And, of course, Felony Friday on Friday, uh, John Odermatt looks at some of the injustices within the justice system and uh, just actually recently had J.B. Lubin on, who is my guest today. He's going to join me a little later in the show because there's some things, as always, that I want to hit at the top. But before I do that, let me encourage everybody to also check out some of the new things we have at Lions of Liberty, which are T-shirts. Very cool stuff. We got some Spock t-shirts in there. Live long and live free. We got some roaring stuff. It's all good, baby. So go to lionsofliberty.store. You can see all the cool t-shirts there. And additionally, we have a new way to support the podcast. And that is that we are doing via Podbean our own little uh, support program to help us grow the show and to keep pumping out quality content. Keep the lights on at the studios. Keep us deep in our whiskey. So you can check that out, lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. And uh, yeah, please be a generous, generous patron of our <laughs> efforts, I guess. It's the best thing I can think of to call them right at the top of my head there. Probably not the biggest enticement to fund our program. <laughs> but anyway, uh, anyways, I got, let me hit some stuff at the top of the show here. First things first, Meryl Streep is at it again. Yes, Meryl Streep, who gave one of the most annoying speeches I've ever heard in my entire life at the Golden Globes when she won a, uh, it was like an award for, I think, overall achievement or something like that. But she is back with a brand new edition of Meryl Streep pats herself on the back in front of an audience full of sycophants and people that think the exact same as Meryl Streep does. This most recent endeavor down, uh, hey, isn't Meryl Great Lane, uh, took place for the, as a gala for the Human Rights Campaign, which is a uh, LGBTQ group, and which is kind of funny because they're allying. She got this award. It was like the Ally for Equality. Even though, if we're being perfectly honest, I looked at some of Meryl Streep's charity work. It doesn't seem like she's really done Jack or uh, S. Trying not to curse too much this episode. <laughs> doesn't seem like she's done Jack to go out of her way to really help the uh, you know the LGBTQ part of the world or anybody in it. Um, you know, granted, I guess she's in the arts, so anybody in the arts is automatically considered a friend to to the gay populace. But mostly what she's been giving money to is, you know, it's just arts programs and museums and stuff like that. And, you know, women's directing workshops. So, meh, whatever. I guess, you, uh, I guess Meryl Streep's a draw in this day and age. And again, it's kind of funny because we have to point out that Donald Trump has been on the side of the LGBT community forever. 
He's constantly saying that he supports them. He's went out of his way to wave a rainbow flag during his campaign speech. And all of the hatred towards him from the uh, the gay populace just boggles my mind. I, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so uh, it's kind of funny that they are now inviting Meryl Streep to come and speak. And again, she goes out of her way to bash Trump in front of this audience that is uh, just slobbering at the bit to uh, to have something new to uh, to clap and applaud about for Trump. Now, what she said at this most recent gala was this. She said, uh, I am the most overrated, overdecorated, and currently I am the most overberated actress of my generation. Really? Most overberated? You br- number one, you brought it on yourself. And number two, uh, you knew exactly what you were doing when you did it. You knew you were going to get tons of accolades from all of the little uh, teetotalers. No, not teetotalers. They're drinking. But all of the little, uh, you know, people that are nipping at your heels and just love you so much and, and can't go out of their way enough to kiss your ass. So she she knows what she's doing this entire time. And then she goes on to say this. And I thought this was really funny. It's terrifying to put the target on your forehead. And it sets you up for all sorts of attacks and armies of brown shirts and bots and worse. Armies of bots? I'm sorry, Meryl. Are there people programming robots to attack you? Is this like the Saturday Night Live commercial where the robots are attacking old people because they need their medicine for fuel? And you can't escape their arms because they're made of metal and robots are strong. Because that's what it certainly seems like. It's just so stupid. Okay, so brown shirts and bots and worse. And the only way you can do it is if you feel you have to. You don't have an option. You have to. So she goes out of her way to call anybody that's responding to her criticism of Trump, uh, which was absurd, a uh, a brown shirt, essentially a Nazi. The brown shirt's what they called uh, Nazis early on. And then, of course, when pushed for comment from the Associated Press, you had nothing to follow up with. But I just love how she's saying she's so brave to go out of her way. It's like, you're not brave. You're not doing anything. You're saying what most of the people you know, if not all of the people you know, agree with. And again, you're doubling down on this crap. And now you made yourself into a martyr. Somebody please call Mel Gibson because we got a new female Jesus form for the Passion of the Christ. Bloody her up. Put the crown of thorns on her head because Meryl Streep's out there. She's ready to be crucified, everybody, for the for the sins that she the self-perceived sins that uh, that the left is being crucified for in uh, supporting LGBTQ rights, which Trump has no issue with. It just it, it frustrates me to have to come on and, and really defend Trump in this way. But I just can't stand this. And I just wish they'd knock it off. So that was number one. <laughs> Second thing. Oh, I'm getting fired up at the beginning of this show, guys. Fired up at the beginning of this show. Um, the other thing, I don't know about you, but I cannot stand the commercials for the truth, hashtag truth smoking commercials. And I recently saw a brand spanking new one, which put me over the edge because they're already obnoxious and annoying. And by the way, funded, you know, it's like a public institution that was funded by a, a, an agreement between uh, basically a lawsuit done by states against uh, the tobacco industry. They sued them because of all the money that was going from coming from Medicare paying for tobacco, which I still don't understand how that's how that got got approved. And uh, they settled with them. But it's, it's all funded by the, from this money. So it's basically a public uh, foundation, nonprofit that's putting these commercials out, which you see constantly. They've got so much money 
they're constantly on the air and I find them so obnoxious. But the most recent really pisses me off and I'm going to play it for you real quick and you'll probably be able to guess why I'm so annoyed by it. Big Tobacco must love diversity. They love it so much that here they advertise up to 10 times more in black neighborhoods than in other neighborhoods. 10 times. How is that okay? Big Tobacco is really trying to make friends with black folks. I see you. So much that in the past, Big Tobacco called us a market priority. It's not a coincidence. It's profile. Don't let it go unseen. And list at thetruth.com. Be the generation that ends smoking. So after listening to that, again, I'm presuming you already know why I'm pissed off and why this is such a stupid commercial that it, it, th- there's no actual point being made in this commercial other than to say, hey, a business is advertising in a community that tends to buy cigarettes more, just like any other business would. Look, if you're Lexus, you typically you're going to advertise to people that are more in your brand or the more in your uh, in, who's going to be buying your product. That's just business 101. I mean, give me a break here. You're telling me that because they advertise 10 times more. And it's by the way, it's not she's saying it's like black. No. Big tobacco. Yes. Black people, you know, sometimes do smoke more. They're, you know, they're communities, but it's not because they're black. It's because those communities typically might be more low income. They also advertise 10 times more in low income white communities, working class communities, because those are the people that tend to smoke more. Probably because they don't have as many other outlets and other vices that they go down in for like uh, the rest of us do. So if you've got that, of course, you're going to advertise in that industry. So that's not a point that's being made. And to say that they're a quote unquote market priority, it sounds evil to the idiots of the world, to the leftists of the world that say, oh, my God, business is so evil. How can they they target these people, uh, making them a priority and advertising to them? Anybody that is in your target market, of course, you're going to make them a priority. That just makes sense. (laughs) They're not going to say, "Okay, um, who never buys our cigarettes and is not likely to buy our cigarettes anytime in the near future? Um, Who's how about 95 year old women who already have emphysema? Can we get some ads up in the bathrooms at the old folks homes? Can we do that? Maybe is there a hospital we can we can slip some into the magazines there and emphysema today? Now, granted, I know people with emphysema probably have already been smoking, but the point remains the same. Of course, any business is going to say, "Okay, what's the path that is going to bring us back the most return on our investment? What's our prime audience? Let's make sure we keep up to date and advertise our products there because they've got a choice. If they're going to be smoking, we want to make sure they smoke our brand. It's not like they're going after them because they want to, they're pushing to, to capture the, the, this brand new market. Now, granted, companies do do that. You do want to expand your market share, of course, into different areas, but especially with smoking at this point in time, smoking companies pretty much know where their bread is buttered. And so it's just a matter of competing within that industry. Just like I'm sure, uh, truth campaign, you know who else advertises more in low income communities? Alcohol. It's the same thing, because when you have a low income, you're more likely to go in for low-cost vices to make your life seem a little bit better. Can we give them that? Let these people smoke if they want to smoke. Don't don't, don't push these campaigns out. Oh, and the hashtag for this whole thing, by the way, was stop profiling, which, again, is incredibly misleading. Because it makes you think, oh, well, they're, they're racial profiling. And that word automatically, that's a trigger word. 
That's a trigger word for everybody. Oh, they're racial profiling, and that's automatically bad. Meanwhile, no. They're building a business profile, which was every single person who has ever started a business. If you want to get a business loan, that's what you have to do. You have to put together as part of your business plan a profile of who your potential customers are. I'm out here in L.A. I'm, I'm doing my comedy. I'm doing my public relations. I'm doing screenwriting. Though I'm not getting any goddamn money at it. But I'm doing screenwriting. And if you're pitching a project, they're going to ask you, what's your potential audience? So I am hashtag profiling who my potential audience would be for my film when I'm pitching it. Because that's what people who are investing in these things need to know. Who is going to buy your product? You don't just go out with a product and have no idea who you're marketing it to or else that product's going to fail. All your advertising dollars are going to be wasted. They're just going to be thrown. You might as well just just drop, uh, just like back in the, in the old days of the war, just drop propaganda from a blimp. You're going to have the exact same effect. So this commercial stupid. Every truth campaign commercial, in my opinion, is completely stupid. And uh, I despise the fact that they're constantly on air and that they are government funded. So that was number two. Let's hit one more topic here real fast, and then we're going to move on to something uh, brand new. Actually, you know what? I'll hit two. Another quick one I want to talk about. This is in, I believe, Utah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is in Georgia. But a Georgia bill would require new ADHD prescriptions every five days. I don't have any uh, issues with attention span. Well, I probably do. I don't have any diagnosed issues with attention span. But I know a lot of people who do. Uh, actually, my best friend, he's got a, a, a child who's, who happens to have a prescription for ADHD. Uh, you know, very necessary for him. And just, I was in, just in talking to him, this bill would basically make it so that if you have a prescription, whether it's for you, whether it's for your child, you could only have a prescription written for five days worth of prescribed drugs. So that means for you know your ADHD, excuse me, your Ritalin, uh, but also for any other drug, essentially. So it's you know for any any other opiate or any other prescribed drug does not go farther than five days. The theory behind this is that it's going to counteract the abuse of opioid prescriptions by making people come back every five days. I guess the argument is that you can't sell your whole bottle to people for uh, twenty dollars so they can abuse it, but. Is it really that big a problem? Like, this is what I always ask myself in these situations. Okay, this guy wants government to step in and create this massive issue for thousands, if not millions, well, not millions, it's only in Georgia, but for thousands of families and individual users, wherein now you can't get a prescription. Like, he was, my buddy was going to go on vacation, and he said, you know, if this was, if this was me, I would not be able to go on vacation because they wouldn't give me a prescription ahead of time. He actually had that happen anyway where his doctor wouldn't give him a prescription, you know, five days before it was due uh, because they couldn't get it filled. And so you go, okay, what am I supposed to do here? My son needs this drug. I can't get it because of this BS regulation you put in place. It's supposed to protect people from abusing it. But at the same time, all it does is affect the vast majority of people who are not abusing it, who really need this. It's just, it's the classic case of unintended consequences that happens so often with regulation. And by so often, I mean every goddamn time, every time they make a provision like this. And of course, ADHD isn't even the target opioid they're going for. This is mostly to combat OxyContin, which, which as we know, uh, as we see the heroin deaths rising because people get hooked on OxyContin and then they turn to heroin. Uh, oftentimes because they're on uh, disability and are prescribed OxyContin. But anyway, I digress. 
So it's not even supposed to be affecting the people with ADHD, but it covers in mass everybody to say a prescription cannot be written by a doctor for more than five days in advance to prevent, quote unquote, doctor shopping around. And this is this, by the way, this bill came from a senator named Renee Unterman. Uh, she's Republican from a suburb of Atlanta. Again, clearly a woman who does not know what the hell she's doing, what she's talking about. Uh, it's you know, like everything. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So nice try, Renee. Uh, you're an idiot. All right. Last thing. I'll try to keep this very short or as short as humanly possible for me. Recently in California, we've had a ton of rain. Now, I live in California, of course. You might remember when I apologized because the rain was coming down so heavily, I was worried it might get caught up in the audio recording and uh, obscure the sound quality. But all of that rain had led to a problem up north of me in Northern California in a town called Oroville. Now, Oroville is home to a dam that actually is responsible for holding back quite a bit of water. Now, in recent years, we've had quite a bit of a drought in California, so it wasn't much of an issue saying, all right, don't worry about the dam. It's probably not going to overflow anytime soon. And a few years ago, though, some environmental groups actually looked at the way the dam was constructed and looked at the uh, the outside spill that comes off the side, which basically, you know, it was an overflow chute that would run down a hill. And the issue was that the hill it was running down did not have construction on it to reinforce it with concrete. So because of that, there was a lot of silt, there could be a lot of debris, and this water could run straight down. It could, uh, you know, dig out the, the dirt over time period with the, the force of that water and then flood Oroville and flood at many other cities and towns around the area, causing millions of dollars of damage. Now, those three environmental groups brought this to, you know, the, whoever the regulatory uh, body was that was in charge of this and said, look, we, we fail very strongly about this, this is going to happen. The body in charge then passed it along to a couple of other agencies that were state run, including, I think, the Metro Water Agency and another one who looked at it and said, yeah, you know what? We don't think this is going to happen. Not going to be a priority for us. We're not going to do anything to fix it, even though to fix this probably would have cost them that much money or taken that much time for being an, uh, you know honest with ourselves. So what happens? You flash forward to this year and this past few weeks, and we've got another eight days of rain coming up in the forecast. But you flash forward, and sure as hell, we get this massive amount of rain coming in. It fills up everything. The reservoirs are filled to the brim, causes an issue wherein it is an emergency situation in Oroville, where there is so much water coming out of the side spillway that it legitimately is starting to uh, erode away all of that sediment and become an issue where they had to evac you know, evacuate people from their homes. Now, fortunately, they were able to come in and do an emergency spill-off that lowered the level of water and ran it away. So crisis averted. But again, why is this crisis even something that has to be averted when you were warned ahead of time? Now, I will acknowledge this and give a little bit of a, a aside here. Environmentalist groups tend to be nonstop with their complaints, with their demands, with coming at you for this, that, and the other. Oh, this is going to harm this. This needs to be fixed. This needs, is going to affect this population of fish. So I can understand why, after a while, a regulatory body might go out of the way to say, you know what, you're probably just full of it. Uh, and that's not something that's surprising. I'm not saying that they should do that, but I can understand in one way why that would happen. However, Let's take a step back and look at this. If this was a privately owned dam, none of this would have ever happened. Because number one, 
the amount of responsibility you have for that dam, if you're a private company and something goes wrong, you are going to be completely destroyed in the courts. I mean, the people are going to sue you for, God knows, millions upon millions of dollars. The company won't survive. If it does, it's some mega company, which, you know, God knows, it'll knock their stock down to the point where I can probably buy it with the money in my savings account right now. But it would never happen to begin with because you would go out of your way to make sure it was built built uh, to the you know proper construction codes. You would actually listen to groups coming to you and saying, look, there's an issue here with this. And here is why. And you say, yep, well, I got to fix that. And why would you fix it? Because you're liable. And because even if you, you know, even if you have a perfect product or something like this, where it's a dam responsible for, for public safety, you are going to have insurance for that to protect your investment, to protect your property, protect everything else. So the insurance company is not going to insure your project or your company unless you make sure that the project is built correctly, it's up to the standards, and that it addresses any potential dangers that could crop up. So just pointing out the private market would have kept this from happening. Uh, that's the last thing for this uh, this little intro. So again, my guest coming up today will be my good friend, J.B. Lubin, my, uh, my buddy from Penn State. And we're going to get to him just right after a few words from our sponsor. Hey, guys, I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of competition for your ears, and it's hard to find time to listen to everything. But there's one show that I make sure to carve out the time to listen to every single day, and that's the Jason Stapleton Program. Jason has been a guest on this show before, and he really does a fantastic job with his show, where he breaks down current events from a libertarian perspective five days per week. That's right. Five days per week. I don't know how he does it, but it's not just a podcast. It's also a live daily studio show, which broadcasts over at jasonstapleton.com. You can, of course, find his podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast. You should have no problem finding Jason Stapleton as well. And the great thing about Jason's show is that it's so professionally done that you have no concerns about sharing it with your parents, your friends, your family. You're not going to get any of that Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. You're just going to get straightforward talk about libertarian ideals in our rapidly changing world. Be sure to check out the Jason Stapleton program. Welcome back, guys. So as promised, I am not going to do this entire show solo like last time. I am going to bring in a good friend of mine, fellow Lion of Liberty Pride member and Penn State graduate, J.B. Lubin, the pride of Philadelphia. Hey, J.B., how's it going? It's going great, man. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I love to have you. This is is my, uh, I guess, my debut. Uh, isn't that surprising? I, I, it's shocking now, like looking back, I'm like, I really, because I don't, we like, we've been on a lot of roundtables, but this is the first time I've had you on the show. So my apologies, it's taken so long. Oh, no worries. I just enjoy the, the lovely intro music every time. And, <laughs> you know, glad well, to be immediately after it. Yes, well, I should I should hope that you can spread the love, uh, pump it when you're walking down the street. That's what I'm advocating people do nowadays. And then uh, we'll really get this show to take off. Now, you were just on Felony Friday as well, and I I encourage everybody to listen to that. That can be found. uh, You can go to that's Felony Friday, episode 58. You were on that, uh, you know, Felony Friday, and you you and Odie were talking about one of the many topics you guys hit on on uh, on that episode was whether or not it is a crime to block traffic, especially because there was a case where an ambulance had to, you know, they had to perform surgery in the ambulance. And I won't go into the details of that conversation too much because people should go just listen to that podcast. But 
I did want to bring it up because there's a relevant story coming out of Tennessee where a bill was put forth that essentially said if anybody is blocking traffic, like a protester is blocking traffic, and I'll link to the bill in the show notes, which, of course, as mentioned, you can find that at ELL7, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL7. Uh, but I'll put the text of the bill in there. It's very short. But basically what the bill says is that if you are driving your car and somebody is protesting, blocking the street, and you hit them, you are not liable for, liable for injury or damages. However, right after that line, there's another line that says, if you willfully try to injure somebody or it's done with willful intent, though, you are liable for their injuries. So, JB, let me ask you, does this bill have any point to it? <laughs> I think none whatsoever. Like, the way that it's worded, my first thought was I, I feel like it was giving some type of um, legal protection to people who might want to, quote unquote, accidentally hit people blocking the road because we already have several laws in the books to deal with this various situation. Right. <laughs> and that's the, and I, the article I was reading about it, basically it had the headline like, Oh, you know, it was like this, this, uh, <laughs> BS headline basically saying, Oh, it just got a lot easier to hit people during protests. But yeah, and I, I opened it up thinking, Oh, did somebody finally make it so you can just like plow down people that are blocking the road? But clearly that's not the situation here. They're just, I don't even know. Like I said, there's already laws on the books that if you're not trying to hit somebody and they're in a public roadway and you're going the speed limit or under, you're probably not going to be liable unless you're drunk. So, yeah, I just, I don't understand what the point of this is anyway. Um, but I did think it was funny that it's become a big enough issue that people are actually looking at it and going, we got to, we got to stop this. Is there any instances of this happening? Do you know? Have you ever heard of like, like people blocking the road and someone like just running them over. There was one and I got a little bit of uh flack on you know, when I posted on the old social medias. This was before actually I think this is the before the Lions of Liberty days. This is before we even really started it. But a few years ago, there were some people doing this, you know, people like to ride bicycles around and they do it in LA, they do it in every major city. Sometimes a bunch of people riding bicycles will get together and decide, you know what, we want to be huge assholes and block traffic. So what they do is they get in the road, they get on a freeway or they get on a major through fare and they ride about 10 miles per damn hour blocking all the lanes and driving everybody nuts. So in France, they did that. And somebody, I think like a BMW or something, eventually just lost it and was like, enough of this and uh, stepped down on the gas, probably <laughs> lit, yelled Viva la France and then mowed down like 10 of them. And then I guess drove away. I don't know. I, I'm presuming after that drove away. So yes, it has happened. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Like laws would easily remedy that. I know in Philadelphia, I see signs all the time when I'm going on any major like highway or like interstate or you know accessory to such that says only motor motorized vehicles are permitted on this road. Right. So don't really have that problem. Just on the streets of Philly, and you know, trying to go trying to go around you have like six bikes in front of you going 10 miles an hour can get pretty aggravating yeah. never wanted to kill anyone though but you know <laughs> i just i just want to gently maim them usually you know just you know, actually what i'd love to do you know what should be legal just give them that little love tap on the back the back wheel you know <laughs> you know what i'm talking about my dad used to do it to me growing up he would buzz the back of my tire 
which was fine until the day he buzzed me and I looked backwards and flipped my bike and then <laughs> smashed my front teeth out, which I guess could theoretically happen if you bump somebody with a car. But who's to say until we try it, guys? Yeah. Was to say, yeah, but yeah, it is aggravating, and, and yeah, this this bill seems like there's absolutely no point to it. Um, but I did agree with the fact that yes, it is definitely a crime to block traffic and deny people, as we as people have talked about, you know, in other libertarian podcasts as well. You are essentially detaining somebody, and you are hampering their ability to be a free person if you're blocking them in the street and won't let them, um, you know, have access to get out of their car to drive the car away. And also in those situations, I would be terrified for my life. So I guess you could justify uh, putting the pedal to the metal if you're saying, well, look, these people are banging on my car with sticks and shouting and shaking my car. If somebody did that to me, maybe then, you know, whether it's willful or not, uh, you're just it's self-defense, arguably. Well, yeah, if they're if they're presumably threatening you, I feel like you should be allowed to, to get out of there. I think it's up to them to get out of the way of the car that they're hitting with sticks at that point. Damn well right. That's why I've created a Mad Max vehicle for myself. All right, so what do you think? Are you ready for uh, for some trumping and some dumping? Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, because it's time. It's been a little while since I did this. So get, let's get right into it. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is Trump, who uh, he met with a guy. He met with a sheriff, Texas. I think it was a Texas sheriff. And... Uh, <laughs> he President Trump met with this guy and he invited the sheriff of the small Texas county to, quote unquote, destroy the career of a state senator who sought to ban a controversial law enforcement practice, otherwise known as asset forfeiture. One of the biggest things that we libertarians despise when it comes to, uh, I guess, forfeiture of state property and uh, and what is or what is not a just use of laws and due process. So just looking at this on his face, the fact that President Trump comes out and so strongly supports asset forfeiture, I found to be a bit of a surprise. I mean, I guess he has, you know, I, I guess he's put, he just put a bunch of new laws on the books as well that are supporting police officers. But were you shocked at all to see him come out and strongly uh, support asset forfeiture? Or was his support of eminent domain over the years kind of a, a nod that this was something inevitable? I don't know. Like, now that you mention it, the fact that I guess he's been cozying up with the police force, it kind of does make sense. But it does seem kind of weird that he would have such a strong opinion about something like this. Yeah. I, 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 my, my thought is only to make himself look good in the eyes of law enforcement. Yeah, I think you might be right. Well, I think it also like he has this quote in the in, that's in this article in Politico I was reading. And he's saying that <laughs> he goes – to the state senator that Trump got mad at for, for putting forth this law that would reform asset forfeiture, Trump says, I told him that the cartel would build a monument to him in Mexico if he could get that legislation passed. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was the Texas sheriff. That's what the Texas sheriff said to this lawmaker. So I think this is all based in a misconception about what asset forfeiture actually can accomplish. Because if you're talking about, okay, we're going to take away the assets of people that have already been convicted or we're going to freeze their assets of these people that were, you know, convicted of something. I guess you could understand that. I I still don't think you should be able to forfeit all of their belongings, but I can understand a freeze so they couldn't use them during something to escape. But, but what happens in all this is that so often people that are completely innocent or people that are involved in misdemeanors get wrapped up in asset forfeiture and get their property taken away. And once that property is gone, good luck getting it back. Yeah, it's it's quite ridiculous. There's, Two different kinds, and they just say asset forfeiture like it's one thing. There's 
criminal forfeiture and civil forfeiture. Mm -hmm. And it's clear, like, criminal forfeiture means that you've been convicted of a crime and these either this property or this money has is involved in said crime so then it becomes i guess property of the government but civil forfeiture like the law enforcement can just take your stuff and then it's up to you to to convince a judge that they were in the wrong it's not it's not innocent until proven guilty in the court of civil forfeiture right you're it's operating exactly the presumed opposite. guilt yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you're 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 automatically guilty you have to convince this judge that you deserve your stuff back. And like, depending on your situation, like all your, your savings can be frozen. Like if you own a business, like your employee pensions can be taken. Yep. Now all these people you used to work for can't get paid and you've never been convicted of anything. No. I mean, they could take your house as well. There's an instance a few years ago, I think I was reading uh, that it was somebody had, you know, their, their nephew or something was a, a drug dealer, a suspected drug dealer. And the cops came in and they froze their assets and they took their house and under civil forfeiture because it was quote unquote a drug house. And you go, well, this guy's just a nephew. His nephew, he's got a nephew. His nephew's sleeping on his couch. He doesn't even know this is going on and you can't prove it's going on. So now this man has nowhere to live and he's got to go and prove his innocence to prove that he should have his stuff back. And half the time, they're depending on the county laws, because a lot of stuff goes down nitty gritty. Uh, they don't even have even if when you prove yourself innocent, they still don't necessarily have to give you that property back or those those assets back. And that's what just I mean, it blows my mind to think about how this I mean, I don't understand how this procedure ever got started in the first place under any court in the land that would say oh no this is this totally makes sense to do well there's a there's a couple of reasons i guess where it in in certain situations i guess would make sense like i was doing a, a bit of research on this and how it, they, dare you <laughs> <laughs> and they bring up the instance like let's say there was like i guess a, a cartel runner who um who they were after they have a warrant they have evidence but he's been killed and maybe he got in a shootout when they were trying to get him and they have all this money and all the, all this like warehouses filled with drugs under his name. Without without him being alive, they can't try him. They can't convict him. So they cannot proceed in forfeiture through the criminal criminal forfeiture. So they have to do civil. And there, I guess in very narrow situations like that, it does in fact make sense, which I feel is why lawmakers are trying to kind of refine this law yeah. so that innocent people aren't getting hurt and you can still, you know, apply it in situations like that, which just seems like all these lawmakers trying to do make a make a law a bit bit better and like remove all this collateral damage from something that might have some useful value. Well, it's like so many of these laws on the books. You know, it was created, like you said, with a specific instance in mind where they said, all right, we have to we have to create something uh, that'll that'll allow us to to process this specific circumstance. And then you look at all the, the collateral damage, all the innocent people pulled into it. It makes me think a little bit of the gambling laws that are on the books and that the way they got the anti-gambling laws, the way they, this whole thing got started was because they were trying to combat point shaving in collegiate athletics. And that one specific targeted goal for these gambling laws has blown up into, you know, nobody can bet outside of a couple states that happen to have grandfathered in clauses through crony capitalist uh, lobbying or you know organizations. And we can't, you know, we can't price bets on fantasy football even now is like coming under regulation and attack so again one of these laws which starts off with i'm sure uh even if they are nearsighted uh p- 
positive ambitions always gets bastardized. And now it's bastardized to the point where people are losing all of their assets and it's just going to fund the state where these cops now, you know, the departments, they almost depend on these these funds. Like they, the, I was reading another piece which said that the civil forfeiture, asset forfeiture, when it was created in like 1986, they had something like, you know, four bill or four million dollars. Uh, and then over the past 25 years, they now get something like $4.3 billion a year is, is through civil asset forfeiture and criminal asset forfeiture. So it's clearly become something that they're, they're using as a means to fund the police departments. And that there makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. It gives them incentive to do this, whether they, whether they feel like justified or not, you know, it's for the, like the, if they even have an inkling that they can get away with this, I feel like they'll try to do it right. because of this reason. And it seems like the onus, as we said, to justify the actions is is very light. It doesn't seem like they have to do a lot of explaining. On the side there, you mentioned something. Is is like having a fantasy football pool where like you buy in and then the the winner takes the pot, is that considered gambling? It is considered gambling, yeah. And um, I, I know there were, and again, I don't. I'm not going to go too, too deep into it because I haven't done a ton of research into it. But yeah, it is considered gambling. I mean, just like you can't run a gambling, like you can't run a, a poker game out of your home legally. You're not, you're not allowed to do it if you're playing for money. Fantasy football is essentially the same. Now, these organizations that run the leagues, I know they've already encountered a lot of legal barriers, even though they might be based in states where it's legal. Um, and I, you know, the last time I wrote an article about it, this is ages ago now, but they were looking to really regulate it and consider it gambling because the way they got around it was that they called it, uh, a hobby rather than gambling because they said fantasy football is a skill. Like, oh, no, they call it a skill. It's a skill instead of gambling. Whereas, you know, gambling, you say, okay, well, it's based on luck. You know, you're just placing a random wager on a team. So the legislators are arguing that no, you're, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice. You don't know how it's going to turn out. It is gambling in the traditional sense. And that's why they're looking to, to regulate it and to potentially, you know, they were trying to shut it down. So that's, that's the, what the industry is going up against now. So yes, the, to do the same thing in your home would be considered illegal gambling. If they, if that, if they prove that that is, is, is gambling by definition, then yes, you would be violating the law by doing it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. So, all right. So, what do you give this uh, asset forfeiture, though? Is it a Trump or a dump? I'm definitely, definitely dump. Definitely dump for me. Yeah. Dumping all the way around. Agreed completely. Asset forfeiture is uh, one of the things that, uh, again, just shocking because it's it's basically, I, I, I find it hard for anybody to actually provide a defense for it. Yet, um, apparently, fear mongering as to uh, drug cartels is the only one they can muster. All right. Yep. Next one up. Let's talk about. Some uh, some brand spanking new news coming out of North Korea and Trump's response slash non-response, I guess you could call it, because um, he he didn't come out strongly. Like North Korea uh, in the past couple days had launched a missile uh, technically at Japan, although that's just, you know, whatever way they were facing, it happened to be facing Japan. It didn't didn't do any damage, didn't hurt anybody, but they did launch a missile and people are considering it a direct kind of uh, thumbing of their nose at Trump saying, ah, you know, you ain't going to intimidate us. We're North Korea. We've got six grains of rice. So his response, though, was not a powerful response, as most people expected, going after North Korea and, you know, uh, really assaulting 
Kim Jong-un in any way. Instead, he basically said that it was, you know, not condoned and, it, you know, we, we, can't, we can't stand for this, but we stand by our allies in Japan 100%. And that was that was effectively it. So, JB, what did you think of that? Is that is his response appropriate? Is it inappropriate? Well, I suppose as being the president, I guess it's a appropriate response. Uh, Japan is a, a longtime ally since the end of World War II, and we have agreements in place of mutual defense, though I feel like it's more one-sided in, in actuality. Um, so I feel, I guess, as president, he would be, he would be obligated to say something in, in support of Japan. I can't really – he didn't, he didn't you know, tweet that he's going to you know, send like the Pacific Fleet over there or right. anything like that. It was a very me- measured response. It's really – I can't really criticize him too much for it. I don't know about you. No, I, I feel the same way, and that's what's, what's kind of cracking me up is so many people – you see these articles and they're saying, oh, it's, you know, I can't believe he didn't rip them apart. You know, all he said was it's intolerable and he didn't even mention South Korea. And, and the South Koreans are all pissed off now because Trump didn't mention that they also, he also stands with South Korea, which of course, you know, they're, they're an ally there too. I'm sure Trump just said Japan because he was literally with the Japanese ambassador, or I'm sorry, the Japanese prime minister, uh, Shinzo Abe, I think is how you say it. Um, yep. Yes, I did it right. Uh, at the time. So clearly he had Japan at the top of his mind. But yeah, I mean, I, I would much rather see a measured response. I, You know, so often you see politicians like look at Gary Johnson, uh, for example. You know, he got called out on not knowing something, but I'd rather have a presidential candidate or a president actively instead of spouting something out quickly, say, OK, you know what? I'm going to just say something very truncated right now while I look at my options and I think about this. And Donald Trump hasn't been in this position before. You know, people are worried about Donald Trump having his finger on the button. This pretty much, you know, it reassures me a bit that he can have his finger or his hand somewhere near the button and he's not just going to push it all the time. Like, like, really, what did they want him to say? Like, invading North Korea is off the table. They have nuclear weapons. You know, it's not like Iraq where, you know, just put a bunch of boots on the ground and there's no like there's no eminent threat of like nuclear war hanging on the balance here. You know, precisely. We, we've tried the sanctions and sanctions don't work without China's help. Like I've, like 90 percent of their commerce goes through China. So you, you can sanction them all they want. It's doing little, little good without China's aid. There's not much he can say. Because there's not much you can do. And for once, they should probably give Trump credit for not blustering and talking out of his ass, you know, because what is he going to do? You know, the best, the only thing we can do is, is provide a defense. And that's what we're doing, especially he might not have mentioned South Korea, but we're deploying this bad missile defense system in South Korea just for this exact scenario. It's like when, you know, it's like Valentine's Day is tomorrow, which is now going to be yesterday when this episode airs. <laughs> and, you know, if you love someone enough, you don't even have to say it. <laughs> That's like Donald Trump in South Korea. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're, we're talking with actions instead of words, you know? There you go. Yeah. He's giving him flowers instead of just, just uh, writing a note. So, yeah, I, I agree. And also, he just had spoken finally with, uh, with China's president. So that is good news. Uh, in that hopefully there was some sort of uh, understanding reached there. Now, whether or not, you know, Trump said, uh, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to antagonize North Korea until we can talk more. Hopefully he did. 
Um, but maybe that factors into play too, where Trump's even taking an even more measured response because he knows that he needs China to, uh, to, you know, impose further sanctions or to deal with North Korea. So he's going to say, I'm not going to intimidate him. I just had a good conversation with China. I don't need to rile this up and undo everything I've just accomplished over the last few days. Absolutely. I'm sure the conversation between uh, China's president and what he says about China in public is markedly different. Oh, I think that's every conversation Trump has. Yeah, that's just my guess. Yeah, agreed. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give it a Trump. Yeah, I'll give that a Trump, too. There we go. Double Trumps. All right. How about another one here? Uh, Let's talk about. So especially here in California, I've seen the, the effects of this immediately. But Trump has, well, quote unquote, Trump's immigration raids. But ICE has really stepped up its raiding, which they say is just their normal tactics. But clearly they have uh, stepped it up because you don't you don't hear about 600 illegal aliens arrested in a week. But, you know, they said some 600 people with uh, raids in certain cities across the country. Uh, Los Angeles was one of those where I, of course, currently live. And. There have been some protests that had gone, uh, you know, smaller ones in the streets to, to, you know, blocking freeways again, as these people love to do, uh, to protest the amount of of crackdown that's been going on. So, JB, what do you think of these ICE agents going in and U.S. immigration is going in and cracking down now? Is it something where we should say, well, they're just doing their jobs? Should people be this upset about it? Or, I mean, what what would you do, I guess, in this situation? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Um, 600 seems like a lot, but in the same exact article, they told me in 2015, they arrested 2,000 people in one week. So this seems like pretty much the status quo. I don't know what causes certain surges, but this hasn't even been the worst in two years. So as far as I'm concerned, ICE is just doing what ICE does. And like I said, in 2015, that was under the Obama administration. Now it's under Trump. I have... I have, I have no information or no evidence to suggest that Trump pushed for this 600 illegal, um, illegal alien um, detention, you know? Maybe this is just how they operate. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's we hard don't for know. Me to, it's yeah. hard for me to say. Now, whether it's right or not, I guess would be a, a different, sub, different subject. Um, that would mostly, for me, boil down to how they're finding these people. Is it actually constitutional? Like, how... It, is it just like they're just randomly detaining people, like randomly searching homes with like no pretense or no warrants or anything? Like I would try to find like how ICE de- determines who, who, how, not how they determine, how do they even find undocumented um, immigrants to detain? And the only thing I could find is either workplace raids or at home. Yeah. So it's like, how did, what, what, what makes an ICE, um, I guess an ICE agent go to someone's home. How do they get this information? How is this decided? Yeah, I until know I either. know this, I don't know if this is if this is right because there could be a lot of people being harassed for no reason just because they might look a certain way or speak a certain way. It's difficult to say without more information. Yeah, most definitely, and I, I agree too. What I had read is that there's a lot of home raids and a lot of work raids as well, and I think there's maybe certain certain public venues where they know they're at. But I'm guessing it's. Yeah, it's a lot of tips. It's probably probably social media. It might be work with the NSA, but I don't know for sure either. I don't know if it's gone through uh, legal or illegal means as well or constitutional or unconstitutional means. I will tell you this, though, uh, in California or in Los Angeles here, I this is this true story today. So we have a housekeeper. She's here legally. 
uh, from Venezuela, but she said that the all of the public transportation was empty today. Empty. She's like, there were two people on it. She goes, because everybody was scared um, to, that they were going to get busted by ICE because of this recent recent uh, crackdown. Although that is that is a really fascinating number. You pointed out, though, that Obama now we know Obama deported more illegals than any other president. But I did not realize that uh, that 600 isn't even as many as we're expor- uh, as we're caught and deported in a month. That's pretty interesting to know and just makes you think, OK, yeah, like you said, ICE is doing what they're what they're supposed to be doing uh, legally. You know, that that task force is this for a reason. And despite what we might say, okay, we want open borders or we want to get rid of their welfare state and then get open borders or whatever, whatever we want to push for in regards to that, the laws as they exist right now say these people are here illegally. And yeah, I mean, if that, if they're doing their job and they're doing it in the, the constitutional manner, then I guess you can't really say too much about it. Um, and it seems like this, this is just media attention more than anything as a concerted effort or Trump calling the head of ice and saying, yeah, get out there and do your job harder and faster than you were doing it before. Well, is there any evidence to, to state that that's exactly what happened was say a, I don't know what department ice falls under, uh, maybe state, I don't know, justice. I don't know. But I'm not regardless, seeing anything like, that's saying that Trump, like even in the article I'm reading now, it's not citing anything specifically saying that Trump has told them, oh, get out there this week and crack some heads. It looks like, you know, clearly he's going to be in support of it. He tweeted, I mean, Trump tweeted, the crackdown on illegal criminals is merely the keeping of my campaign promise. Uh, gang members, drug dealers and others are being removed. Now that again, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily doing anything specific, but yeah, yeah. It's just reporting I don't what's happening. He has anything to do with it? No, no. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I think he's got bigger things on his mind at the moment than, um, than telling ICE to get out there and, and find people. And also, the thing is, too, I guess uh, the only way they could really do an increased amount of of uh, action and, de- and deportation like this, if we're talking about them getting their information constitutionally, and not just randomly kicking people's doors in, which of course would be horrible. Um, I guess that, you know, it has to be something where they already knew these people were at certain places. It said like 75% of them had prior convictions or were already, you know, were suspected of being criminals. So maybe they were tracking them the whole time anyway. And this is just them, you know, certain of these leads coming to fruition one way, shape or form. Yeah, it's quite possible. I just don't know. I just don't know. So that's why it's going to be very hard to give this a grade. But I'm going to ask you to do it. What would you give it? A Trump or a dump? It's it's tough for me because, like I said, I don't even know if he has anything to do with it. So how can I grade him on it? <laughs> so you know, like I guess I guess I'll give him a Trump because it's the it's the neutral. I'm not going to give him a dump for something I don't even know if he had anything to do with. So yeah. I'll go with Trump there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so torn on this one. I I want to give him a dump just because the part of me that that is against people being terrified and, uh, you know, and having goons burst into their, their homes and workplaces. I am so against, uh, but yeah, I agree. I, I don't know either. I don't know how much influence this is. And I, I side with what you said there and they're just kind of doing their job. So until the laws change, they are simply, uh, enforcing the laws that are on the books. And if people are here illegally, they know this is a risk they're taking. And they actively chose to take that risk when they came into this country illegally or stayed past the point where they were supposed to leave. So I'll also give it a, a very hesitant Trump. All right. One more thing. And then uh, then we're going to wrap it up with uh, with the wonderful Mr. Lubin here. Um, the last thing I just want to bring up is not going to be a Trump or dump, but it's going to use the same sound effects. 
because we're going to do a little Rand Paul lessons and minuses. Well, just one Rand Paul lesson minus that is. And that is, I want to talk just really quickly about Rand and Jeff Sessions. Now, uh, Rand did, in fact, vote for Jeff Sessions, even though he had been uh, pretty vocal in criticizing Jeff Sessions earlier, not as much as with Bolton, and that might come into play. And I think he really uh, despised one of Trump's nominees, uh, I think, for, oh God, I can't remember what it was, and I apologize, guys. But uh, anyway, Rand did vote for Sessions, and when he when he was pushed on why he voted for Sessions, he said that basically the character assassination from the Democrats and the left had annoyed him so much that he decided he was just going to vote for him. So, JB, what are your thoughts on on Jeff Sessions and uh, and Rand supporting him? And should we give him a Rand Paulus or a minus for his decision to vote for Sessions uh, overall and considering the fact that he may have done it just out of spite for the left? I'm just going to come right out and say this is a minus. That's a ridiculous reason to vote for someone for such a pretty important position, I feel. Like, what are we talking like? Attorney General here? Yeah. You can't vote for the Attorney General out of spite. So definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely a minus as far as Rand is concerned. And as far as Sessions, I, I'm not a big fan. I'll be completely honest and say, I don't know for certain, but I'm probably, I probably, I feel that he's probably a racist. <laughs> and um, his, his track record as a prosecutor and um, everything he's going, he's, everything that he's done before his time and Congress would lead, has led me to that belief. So I don't particularly feel comfortable with having someone being attorney general who doesn't, you know, apply the law equally yeah, and well, doesn't I, look at the law equally. I definitely agree. I, I don't know if I'll go as far as to say he's a racist because some of this, the racist things people were associating with, like one was clearly a joke. Uh, about the KKK and this this KKK trial, and that's what I talked about yeah, in an I'm earlier not even episode. Talking about that, that that's like that's basically like conjecture. I'm talking about yeah. like what he did as a prosecutor and what he's things that he su- supported, like like the hundred to one crack cocaine disparity, where you like you get hundred times the sentence if you have crack versus cocaine. Oh yeah, oh which no, is, without a doubt, you know, unequivocally affects the African American community and his uh, refusal to. Um, um, let black judges on the on the federal bench in Alabama and all sorts of things that he has a lot of skeletons in his closet and there's way there's too much smoke for there not to be fire as far as he's concerned. That's I'm fairly certain he's a racist. Well, I hadn't heard about the Alabama judges. If you have, do you have any anything a little bit more you can tell us about that? Well, I can't say in any detail, right? Because I was just I just read it in passing like a few weeks ago. Okay, yeah, no, I, that's what's one thing I hadn't heard about. The, I mean, obviously, he is awful on justice reform, criminal justice reform. He is awful on the war on drugs, and he is without a doubt a supporter of what we were talking about earlier uh, with asset forfeiture. And I remember one thing I was equating him with is that even even though he had tried to distance himself from the KKK. The comparison I made was that by all of the actions that he's taken and his support of the existing uh, way that we have justice and the war on drugs, what's so different than, you know, you got a bunch of thugs kicking in your door that are still going to take away your life. Whether it's the KKK or the DEA, the tactics are the same, and oftentimes the end result is very similar. So, yeah, I'm no fan of Sessions either. Yeah, Jeff Sessions is very much in favor of the the jackbooted goon uh, method of justice. Yeah. And that can't possibly be good for anyone. 
Yep, agreed. Well, I agree with you. It is a definite minus when it comes to Rand supporting Sessions. They were saying maybe he was doing it for political reasons where he wants to come, you know, come back stronger on a different nominee later that he hates even more. But, you know, <laughs> taking in one that's like there's they, taking the lesser evil is still not a position anybody should be advocating for. Um, if they're both evil, you should still not vote for him. And yeah, even though it did crack me up that Rand took the position that he was voting for Sessions just because he was so aggravated with uh, with the slander and and character assassination that was performed, that's still not a reason. You gotta you gotta vote against a man who is clearly not going to stand up and do what's right as far as we're concerned in many situations. So. Yeah, I'm generally in favor of doing things out of spite, but I feel like the stakes are <laughs> stakes are a little too high in, in this instance. You hey, I started go, this entire podcast out of spite. Yeah, exactly. I was, so. I was pissed off at Odie and Mark for having their shows. I said, screw you guys. I'll do my own podcast with Blackjack and Hookers. All right, man. Well, that's it. Any other thoughts uh, on the at the end of the pod? Otherwise, I'm, uh, I'm going to say my goodbyes. Well, I think I've said my piece. <laughs> All right. And it was a wonderful piece. Thank you, JB, for coming on the show. I will definitely have you back on uh, now that now that we've we've broken the ice, and uh, <laughs> and so guys from uh, JB and I here at Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged in to Liberty.